Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas, Makalua, the main team, Mega Bears fan. Welcome to Polycast 358. I'm Makalua, and as usual, I'm joined by Mega Bears fan. Woohoo! Yay! Still in quarantine. And since he has, doesn't have much else to do, uh, also Dan Q. <laughs> At least the sun is shining. Oh, lucky you. It's clouded back up again. It's like For gray. Now. Right, so it's a topic we've been intending to get to for a little while, but hey, it's still kind of timeless. Your best and three worst things about Civilization VI, in your opinion, thread over on Civilization Fanatic Center, started by Lotteringo. I don't think there's any relation to a certain beetle. You see, kids. Uh, <laughs> published on the 7th of February, there is more than 45 replies and more than 5,100 views as of this recording. And although it's not a top 10 list, and I know everyone's disappointed because it's like, Dan, you've been back as a guest for how long? And we're still waiting for the top 10. I know. I know. You know, you got to keep fans wanting. And that's what makes them come back and listen to the show. You so know like that. Dan is saying, will you take a top three instead? Yeah, it's, just, <laughs> it's two top three lists. So, you know, it's, it's a list of six. It's, it's Dan, Dan approves. It's acceptable. It's a compromise. <laughs> it's an appetizer. Uh, <laughs> so I went through and, and made it into a, even a bit more of a list uh, in the sense of I went through all the posts and I tried to parse some easier than others what people thought were the best and the worst, their top three, and then put it into sort of a ranking. Uh, let's start with the worst, actually. I know it says start with the best, but I like to end on the best and on a positive note. Uh, three people cited the policy card system and lack of replayability. Our strategic choices as described by the opening poster as their worst things. Six talked about the user interface. Seven talked about the artificial intelligence. Nine talked about diplomacy. And 12 talked about the World Congress. <laughs> uh, as far as <laughs> I'm sure yeah, I was we'll going to say, Phil says only seven people mentioned the user interface. <laughs> I'm sure we'll get back to those. Probably have more to say about the worst than the best. But as far as the best goes, six people really like the great person system. Eureka's an inspiration, uh, tied as well at six. Twelve people said loyalty. Thirteen said uh, civilization variety, and by far and wide the best part of Civilization VI, according to those who have responded to this thread anyway, are the districts that the game introduced, with 24 people citing that as one of the best. Now, for myself, the worst, uh, I am going to cite the Artificial Intelligence as number three, uh, the World Congress as number two, and Diplomacy as number one. I kind of view World Congress as kind of a subset of Diplomacy, even though, of course, you can if you choose, you can ignore the World Congress or treat the World Congress differently than the rest of the diplomacy system, which is part of the issue. But I think artificial intelligence, we could pretty well stick that on any worst list for civilization title X 
uh, past, present, and quite possibly even future. Um, but yeah, diplomacy and World Congress, I think there's some really good ideas there. It's just the execution with regards to the World Congress. I think the biggest thing that I would like to see changed with the World Congress is just what in the world decides, and I'm certain it's in the code and people probably out there probably know, but how do they decide what the resolutions are going to be in the World Congress? Because sometimes it's none of these things really matter right now. Well, clearly, or there man, are... the Civ Six is simulating some vast, expansive, like worldwide bureaucracy. And uh, this is just uh, what they dude, come up my with. laptop does not that have kind of that computing power. <laughs> okay, excluding Mackie's laptop. Everyone, <laughs> everyone else's computer is part of this system. Okay, we will, we'll just get that up front. Because oh, I think what would really help is, and I know someone might say, isn't Dan, isn't this just the equivalent of let's have a meeting to have a meeting? But let's have a vote to have a vote. Like, what do we want to talk about? And your diplomatic favor could be tied to, okay, here are the choices. And I could see people being, oh my gosh, there's all of these choices on the screen. Mm. Not to be inundated, but okay, there are certain ones that you can choose from in this era. And then as time goes on and relationships improve and okay, everyone has met everyone or most people have met everyone. Then there's more things that are, are possible and can come up. And you might even want to limit it to, oh, you know, okay, you can't have the same resolution two times in a row. Otherwise, we're never going to see the variety. You can get into all of those specifics. But if you want people to buy in to the World Congress system, I think that is a big part of the control before we even start talking about everything else, because it's either I'm really interested or I'm just clicking on something to get rid of it. And if I'm really not that vested and I don't care one way or another, I'm just going to bank that diplomatic favor, which then means that while well, I'm sitting here and accumulating it, and when's the next World Congress resolution, another 20, 25 turns, maybe it'll matter. Maybe I will start caring. And sometimes, oh, look at that. I have excessive grievances because, I don't know, I have all of these uh, other civilizations' capitals that I'm holding. And I don't care that I'm minus 15, minus 20 diplomatic favor because this really doesn't matter to me. It feels so disjointed, even more than the rest of the diplomacy. But I think that would help the World Congress a lot, is give all of the players, AI, human alike, a chance to say, what is it that we care about? And then let's discuss it. Yeah, uh, I would definitely agree that the World Congress is like not very uh, well implemented in Civ 6 and is probably like almost strictly a regression compared to Civ 5. Like Civ 5's World Congress, I think, was better in almost every conceivable way. The one and only big asterisk on that, uh, on that statement is that I do really like the emergencies uh, system, or at least in principle in Civ 6, that the World Congress can actually react relatively quickly to, uh, in-game events. And, uh, and that's one of the things I think that actually Civ 6 does very well is like kind of creating like almost a narrative, like as the game is going on, like a story of like what is happening to your world through the, uh, the historic moments and the, uh, emergencies and Eurekas and like various other systems where it, the game kind of almost records, you know, what's happening and then reacts to it or the game changes based on what's happened. And, and that's something that they, it's a really subtle thing, but it's something that the, the game is actually pretty good about. Not good enough for me to have put it in my top three, but, you know, pretty good. Yeah, and the mechanics are already there if they wanted to switch it around to where we could vote for the top is because we have that already to be able to submit emergency. Right. So it would not be that difficult to do that. 
Although it is kind of funny sometimes the emergencies, like when we've had this in multiplayer, somebody will take a city and then 20 turns later, an emergency comes up for that city or 30. Yes. It's just like, what the world? Yeah, I think it's probably the person proposing it had to wait that long to save up enough diplomatic capital to uh, be able to, or diplomatic favor. Sorry, capital was the Beyond Earth one. uh, Had to save up (laughs) enough diplomatic favor to uh, actually propose it. And I can see. Yeah, I can see that. I, that's okay. I, I can see that. And when you said, Jason, that that the emergencies can be reflective of what's happening in the moment, and I, that's kind of that qualifier. As Mackie said, it could be many, many turns later, which I understand that, okay, you should still be able to propose it. If you weren't able to get the world to say, we need to do something about this and we need to do something about this now, because you didn't have enough difficulty favor to propose it let alone people vote on it it's kind of reflective of why should we care about your concern when you're really not participating as part of a global community and then time goes on and it's oh, okay maybe they do have a point because they've shown that perhaps we should pay attention to what they're concerned about it's just if that comes up later than that kind of two qualifiers to me number one it shouldn't have the same weight in terms of potential reward and benefit necessarily. It could be more, it could be less. Perhaps that emergency went from to a mountain to a molehill, or uh, or sorry, down from a mountain to a molehill, or I could have gone the other way around. So what it is that you would get if you are successful, what does it get that you would not would change. But also, please, 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 even if it was an emergency 20 turns ago, if that civilization suddenly no longer exists, a lot of those emergencies in part to me don't make sense anymore, or at least they should be shaped a little differently at the very least maybe it should prompt hey this civilization is no longer in the game do we still want to go ahead and punish this person like do we still care about that especially if it's something to liberate something for someone well they don't exist anymore yeah i know you can liberate them and bring them back into the game but at <laughs> a certain point last week yeah i mean at a certain point i think it can be a little ridiculous in terms of the timing and the reaction but that's very tweakable and i do like that and i agree with you jason that that is the exception to what civ 6 brings to the world congress as compared to what you saw in civilization 5 and with those minor tweaks and what seems to be like a major impact on the game which would be to allow us to vote on these things even though to be able to put it into the game seems a very relative minor thing to be able to do. That would make a <clears throat> well world of difference with this mechanic. Yeah, well, and, and I would say um, that that delay of twenty turns, you could la- look at that on a very abstract level as being that aforementioned, you know, bureaucratic red tape that uh, I jokingly referred to earlier. It's either you have to spend that time going through the red tape of the World Congress, or you had to go through your own internal bureaucracy just to get enough government support to actually propose the thing to begin with. So, you know, at a very high level, you could look at it that way. And we could even further tweak it. And someone might say, but Dan, now you're starting to get into some minutiae here. I'm not sure if the you know AI could handle it. I, I, I get that. But if we could address that, then it could even be, you know what? Uh, let's have an emergency. Do you want this over 10 turns, 20 turns, or 30 turns? You have more time to complete it, but the reward isn't going to be as great. You know, the bigger the risk, the greater the reward. That would, I think, add even more intrigue and people wanting to buy into it more to, for example, have diplomatic capital. And related to that and tied to diplomacy, uh, which is something we don't have uh, in Civilization VI, but say had in Beyond Earth, it's, hey, I really want you to vote in favor of this um, in this upcoming resolution. What What's it going to take? Yeah, that would be very nice. I mean, it does help that we can get intel to say, hey, it's most likely that this civilization is going to choose 
this resolution, you know, it's going to choose option A or it's going to choose option B on this particular item. And you have an idea, depending upon uh, spy level, whatnot, I think, if you know who that person is. And that's good, but it would be nice to be able to directly influence that. And not saying that you'd always get that, but that would be kind of a... uh, Hmm. You know, if you vote, you know, and vote in favor of that, then I will give you this strategic resource. I, you know, I'll give you the X number. You know, I'll give you coal. Now, you want fifteen coal for you wanting to put in your, you know, fifteen or twenty diplomatic favor, whatever, because that's going to make the difference. That's fantastic. Or even, hey, we know there's going to be a, this. There's going to be this emergency against me. Can you not vote for it? Um, that would be great, and I think that that would help. So then, in that way, World Congress would be improved, and it would also help diplomacy itself overall. Yep. As for the artificial intelligence, oh man, that's a, a, a broader thing to talk about in terms of what do we do about the artificial intelligence? I mean, how, how far tangential do we want to get on this? How, how big picture do we want to get on this? Should the AI be trying to win the game or no? You know, those kind of questions that you, you kind of get into, like what are they trying to, to play for? But as an example, just one example, um, when you have the option to repair your defenses, and 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 you don't, and it's twenty five, thirty turns later, and you you still don't have your defenses repaired. I, I just back I, to your city for a second round, and what do you mean your walls are still half down? You know, like little 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 things like that, and of course the perpetual oh crap, I'm being beat up. I know what I will do. I will build a settler, and I will send it out with no escort or a minimal escort that can easily be squished. And even better, let's move it right into the lands of the people who are currently attacking us. You know. All of these little things, I think it's kind of death by a thousand cuts when it comes to the AI. Especially, I think there are certain... Go ahead. Yeah. I was just say, especially considering that repairing city defenses is not like repairing a district. It does not take 30 or 40 turns to repair no. walls. It only takes, like, what, two turns, three turns, maybe, depending on uh, yeah, which man. level of walls? Yeah, I think the most I've seen is six, but that was later on in, in the game, and it was a substantial repair effort. But yeah, it's it's pale in comparison to what you could see with a district, particularly when it's a city that's still on the front, you know, yeah. and that the you know the troops are still on the border, and maybe you have uh, even at that point asked you know asked, hey, can you remove your troops? And you go ahead and maybe promise, like, yes, I will, and then you don't, or you don't promise to move them, and then they're still sitting there, or, or uh, maybe one other last little. Uh, uh, nitpick, and it's actually tied to diplomacy in a little bit. It's, hey, we just went to war. I was the aggressor. It's even more ridiculous when I'm the aggressor. Uh, hey, can I get open borders for ten gold or something? Sure, thanks. What? Like they often won't accept. They won't accept an embassy, which okay would make sense. But open borders, it's like okay, well, we haven't denounced you yet, so we will entertain open borders. And okay, it's more than you know. I'm talking about like on quicker online speed here. Um, it's okay. You want. 14 or 15 gold instead of one or two or three. Well, okay. To play devil's advocate on that one, though, uh, from my experience, it seems to be the case that after you end a war with an AI sieve, like their uh, relationship status with you goes to like that middle, like kind of cautious or almost neutral level. And I think the reason they do that is so that you actually do have the potential of getting back to peaceful terms with that sieve. And so that it's not like sieve five, where you end up in this downward spiral where 
Uh, every time you have any conflict with any Civ, they get negative diplomatic modifiers, and then it's just like impossible to ever be friendly with them again. So I think that's the reason that they do that, so that you're just not stuck in this downward spiral of, of endless uh, war and everybody hating you because of one small conflict that happened in the past. I certainly agree with that approach. Perhaps then a measure to marry that with the other is a decay. Yeah. It's okay. It's it's negative right now, but I know it sounds kind of awkward. It's just like, hey, it's been fifteen turns past when you could have attacked me, and you still haven't. Okay, maybe now I'm a little less concerned about you continuing what you started before. So I could see that. Then I could see that in that case. Yeah, the the game is very good at reacting to uh, what happens in the game, but uh, unfortunately, the AIs are not. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing like the AI with their settler. I must go to this hex. And you just happen to be sitting there. I'm just, I'm just going to sit here, turn after turn after turn, waiting for you to move. You, you could go to like to the one hex over. Nope, I must. Go. Like the behavior, like that, like trying to understand that, and for it to react a little better, um, or to plan a little better in some cases, is w- would help a lot. And as I said, I think it's like a death by a thousand cuts with the AI. There's nothing super, super glaring, other than some of the uh, the ways that they handle certain type of warfare, like. Air, for example, um, overall, but it, well, does the diplomacy and World Congress really stand out even more than the AI, which I suppose is a good thing in some respects. There is the very rare instance where the AI in Civ Six does something really clever, like how they actually use great people as like scouts and reconnaissance units because great people can't die. Uh, like for a long time, I thought they were so stupid for doing that because like I, you know, I was so used to Civ five. I never sent my great people out unescorted because I thought they would be instant destroyed if an enemy unit walked over them or a barbarian. And I always thought, ah, oh, stupid AI exploring with your great people. I'm just going to walk over it and kill it. I didn't realize it just went back to the capital and they could use it again. So touche AI, touche uh, yeah, I, I think certainly because of that, I can see them doing that. That's especially good if you accidentally, say, take a great person that you can't use. I'm thinking of that, like that early great scientist. Oh, it's for, you know, holy sight. Oh, geez, I don't, I don't have any. Oh, I took it and I wasn't paying attention. But I think for the most part, the benefit you would get to actually use that great person would be better than scouting purposes. But at the very least, yes, it could just kind of be like it's a scout that can't be killed. It's just a scout that gets sent back right as opposed to the actual scouts in the game which almost certainly will get killed (laughs) (laughs) so dan did you have a personal top three and worst three yes i did that was the uh number three artificial intelligence to world congress and then diplomacy was number one that was on my worst list oh sorry i thought you were still just going over the the top vote getters in the thread it just happened to coincide with that (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I flipped World Congress and Diplomacy. Like, in the thread, World Congress was number one with 12 votes, and Diplomacy was nine. And I'm like, no, I think we're dealing, in, in some parts, with the with a symptom rather than the cause. So, Diplomacy and then World Congress as a subset, and I do believe that they're intricately related, where if you do something positive for one, then it stands to reason that it will do something positive if how it indirect for the other. So I think that's where the focus should be first and foremost before dealing with any other mechanics, before even adding new other mechanics, because of course that just brings in a whole other host of questions. Let's improve that which is already in the game that has a place in the game and we I think should be in the game. It's just once again the implementation sometimes seems one step forward, two steps back. Indeed. 
So what was your worst three, Jason? Are there, is there any overlap with mine? Uh, actually, surprisingly, no. Those did not make my, uh, my worst three. I think part of it is that I've just become complacent <laughs> with those three things because they're always complaints in oh. games. Even Civ Five, you oh, know, like diplomacy was, you know, not great. Uh, you know, Civ Five did some things better. Civ Six does some things better. Uh, but yeah, so I, I did actually post in this, uh, in this thread. So I'll, I'll go over, uh, I guess just the worst three for now, and then we'll cycle back to the top three, uh, later, I guess. Yep. And um, wow, Jason, you're going to be the first panelist to ever quote themselves from a thread. I know, right? Actually, I, that's did, not true. But, did, did, did uh, Phil post in here? Let's, let's find his. Uh, all right. So my, you want me to go in ascending order or descending order? Well, that's up to you. I kind of like going from three, two, one, you know, save the best of the worst for last, question mark. Right. Uh, <laughs> so for me, my uh, number three worst thing is uh, the shallow unit upgrade paths. Like the fact that you have to wait every other era, to get a new unit leads to a lot of these crazy imbalances where the new unit is so much more powerful than the previous units that a lot of times they just sweep across the map. And, uh, like, this is something that Civ Five was so much better than Civ Six, uh, with regard to, was they had, Civ Five had a unit, like, almost every era, for almost every unit path. So, there were a lot more incremental gains from, uh, you know, researching and, uh, upgrading your units. Like, just having, like, one, uh, musketman, right, did not allow you to just sweep across the enemy's uh, military and wipe out pretty much all their units the way that you can almost do in Civ VI. Uh, so that's something that just frustrates me to no end, the uh, fact that, you know, just one upgraded unit can uh, completely turn the tide of a war. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it can. I think it can. I think that part of that also depends on how many of those units that you are fielding. I mean, if you're able to you know, say, uh, just try to compare like things here, you know, say archer to a longbowman. That's like, okay, well, I've, I've got my one longbowman. If you have seven or eight archers and you're in a position that you can use them all at once and can attack along with the other units, then, well, great for you to have the superior technology, but I've got just sheer superior numbers as compared to your technology. But I can certainly see how it can be a very immediate game changer when even with the promotions that you have, in Civilization VI to try to reward units that have done good, in part because you or the AI have done good by them, that a lot of that can be quickly undone with just one or two units, and oh no. Well, at right. certain points in history, it would make sense, like when gunpowder start, first started being used. But when you're talking about ancient era, and ooh, I have Archer instead of Slinger, then it gets kind of silly. Well, even then, like, when gunpowder was first introduced, I mean, the guns were so inaccurate and unreliable oh, and non-fatal. Yeah. I mean, remember, up until, like, the early 1800s, like, rich people were still having duels with each other uh, with pistols at 20 paces because the guns were that unlethal. So, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in some cases with the... Of what it did for siege weapons, because a cannon, even a crappy early cannon, could put a hell of a hole in a wall. That's true. Yeah. Uh, having a, a, yeah. And, and you're right. There are those, uh, and one of the ones where Civ, like, actually, I think totally nails it is with artillery, like artillery being so much more powerful than, uh, like units that came before it. And then similarly with air units. Cause yeah, those were things that changed the, you know, face of warfare. 
Uh, I think they could probably make a, you know, machine guns be a little bit more powerful against earlier units than, than they actually are, but giving them two range, uh, as compared to the one range that they had in Civ, uh, five definitely helps. Cause yeah, machine guns, uh, machine guns and dynamite, like, changed the face of warfare. And of course, tanks. Tanks. <laughs> <laughs> Man, some of those earlier gunpowder units just to briefly come back to that, and sometimes it's more yeah. lethal for the person wielding the weapon than the person that you're aiming at. Yeah, I mean, Civ <laughs> Five or Civ Five and Civ Six, they don't have like an arquebus unit, you know, or a blunderbuss unit, uh, you know. So like the the musket was like an actual gun that actually worked, you know, fairly reliably. So it's not like they it's not like they have the the earliest earliest of gunpowder units where you know half the time you use it, it just exploded in your face. Uh, yeah, we don't have like Civ Four had the the grenadier, right? Yeah. So uh, I don't know, but I don't know. Maybe maybe it would be nice to have those sorts of units because it would uh, actually deepen the upgrade paths and have more. Because I, I I would just like to have more incremental gains in unit strengths as opposed to you hit one tech and like you know it just blows everything else out of the water um you would like to see a return to say a composite bowman between an archer and a long bowman that civ yeah. 5 introduced yeah i think not initially but one, eventually did yeah i think one unit about every era for almost every unit line is about where it would be and in civ uh, 6 in particular i think the worst case is with naval units where you get your galleys and your quadrimes and then there's nothing until caravels and frigates. Mm -hmm. Like, one medieval naval unit, at least. Because, like, at the very least, you need something that's actually, like, viable in, like, warfare. Because, the you know, other than, like, the Viking longship, like, the ancient classical naval units are just garbage. Like, you can't use them to siege cities. Like, one archer will completely obliterate an entire navy in a city. So, until you get to, uh, you know, frigates and caravels. Uh, so, yeah. And we have so many accounts of the navies being super powerful in that era, so it feels backward. Yeah, yeah the, only, the the other way to try to, to balance that, although I agree there should be more incremental stuff, is to have it be even more reward in the promotion system for an earlier unit to say that, okay, well, I haven't quite reached no two eras down to get the next siege weapon, but my siege weapon here has managed to demonstrate itself in battle, and because of that experience, can at least to some numbers, but not to certainly overwhelming numbers, or maybe even a moderate amount of numbers, counter that. But the promotion tree, while good, is not a replacement for the incremental steps, and I think it would be better to have the incremental steps rather than touching the promotion aspect. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, moving on, my, um, number two, uh, worst thing about, uh, Civ 6, uh, is something that I've, uh, talked about before and, uh, have written about in, uh, blog posts, which is, uh, the way that the game handles difficulty scaling and how the higher difficulties tend to just front load all the difficulty. And then, like, once you conquer, like, one or two civilizations early in the game, it's kind of smooth sailing from there. Uh, and I also really dislike how the higher difficulty levels, like, really shoehorn you into a more militaristic approach, because the AIs are so much more aggressive, they start with free units, they start with extra cities, so you don't have room to expand, you pretty much have to conquer their cities if you want to expand, and just there's so many more barbarians, and the barbarians are so much more aggressive. Like, you pretty much just have to be building units, and just wait until you've conquered somebody before you start actually building, uh stuff in your actual cities and especially when there's an inequity on the barbarian part because it's not like okay everyone is dealing with this barbarian issue it's no no you just happen to luck in a spot 
where the AI, the barbarian AI just happened to be near mounted units, and now you have horsemen early on, and it's always exaggerated as you go up the difficulty level to your more general point, Jason, because the AI is getting even more units that they're able to field, and at a certain point, like the AI isn't smarter, they just have more of stuff, so incidentally, they end up being better off, which in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem, but you start adding the barbarians into the situation as well and then their ability to you know not just do stuff with the units but they're improving their science is going faster and the culture is going faster and they're able to get more cities up more quickly without really thinking about what it is that they're doing and i know it ends up being an even bigger question about game design but for me the sweet spot in terms of difficulty level has been emperor uh, against the AI. And yeah. yes, the AI does start with units, but it's not so extreme where you feel like you're pigeonholed into if I'm near someone that I, you know, okay, I'm not that you should necessarily do this anyway, but the, the consequences for not being so prescribed in what you're doing is not fun. And maybe that's what Firaxis is going for. And that's what it means to be an immortal or deity level player. And all the power to the people who can figure out that minutia and i can see there can be some satisfaction in that but i don't particularly find that replayable and to me that's what civ is so if it's always prescribed that you should go this way or that way or it's this opponent and you should go to this tech and you should build this first and that first then again that's just taking a big part of the exploration out of the game so immortal and deity is just kind of like you know that's nice and i don't necessarily see it as i'm not as good a civ player because of those difficulty level issues even though i think as a difficulty level, you should be able to say, hey, I won a scientific victory, or I won an X number of victory, or hey, I survived 100 turns on a mortal, which is a different conversation than, hey, I survived 100 turns on Chieftain. Yeah, and uh, on top of that, like the the uh, front-loading a bunch of AI, you know free stuff for the AI like also has the downside of like kind of undercutting the desire to make the game more challenging because now the AIs have more and better stuff at the beginning of the game, which means if you conquer their cities, you get more and better cities than if you had settled them yourself or if you had conquered AI cities on easier difficulty settings because they're going to have more districts, you know, they're, they're going to have, you know, better infrastructure, you know, they, they start with free builders, they're going to have improvements in their terrain, they might have districts up, uh, they'll have buildings in their city that you just have to spend one or two turns repairing instead of 15 turns building. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to build your own settlers yeah. because you can steal the AI settlers or capture... Uh, their cities after they've been settled. So, like, it, it's it's just one of those things where, like I said, it, it shoehorns you, it railroads you, and it, it just feels frustrating instead of fun. And it, it, the, the challenge doesn't feel like it's a challenge that uh, really represents the game as a whole. Uh, and then... We... Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, it's just the bonuses thing is just part of what we run into with AI in general, whether it's Civ or Stellaris or what else is that you have to give it some sort of a boost because they can't ask you, if, if they want to sell the most amount of units of the game, they can't ask you to have a supercomputer that could run a more sophisticated AI. I mean, there, there's that kind of a limit, and there's also the skill of the programmer limit, which I, I mean, I don't really know what that, where the level is for those guys, but it it takes a lot more to make the AI smarter than we realize from uh, both the skill of the programmer and the, what the computer you're running it on can do. I mean, you could have a more sophisticated eye, but then your turns would take like super. So 
True, but you could also do things like you could scale up their bonuses as the game progresses, so the AIs would hypothetically get harder as the game goes on, instead of it being the hardest at the start of the game, and then, you know, a lot easier once you've cleared that hurdle of beating one or two of them. Uh, but uh, uh, another thing kind of related to that is the fact that uh, uh, on the highest difficulty settings, like I said, I, I kind of feel like there's this hump, right, that you get over, which is conquering that first... Uh, AI Civ or two, and once you get past that, like, it's kind of smooth sailing from there, and in a game that takes 400 plus turns to play, and takes days, weeks, or months, you know, tens of hours to play a single game session, like, you you really don't want all of the challenge to be, like, in the first half of the game, or quarter of the game, or third of the game. Like, it really should be spread out more, because we've talked numerous times about, you know, being frustrated with the victory states and end states of the game, where, like, the game is over, you know, in, like, the Renaissance. Like, it's decided, but you still gotta click end turn for another 200 turns before you actually get to a victory screen. Yeah, and part of that there is just something inherent to turn-based games, is that you're going to snowball at some point, and then you're unstoppable. <clears throat> it's, it's, but how do you how do you stop the player from doing that? Because we know that's the best strategy, so we're going to try to snowball as quickly as we can. And then, yeah, because yeah, because particularly if you do this in multiplayer, so many times I don't see the end game at all. So like if I'm lucky, right. we get up to artillery and stuff. Yeah, I mean, we could start throwing out ideas for for ways to change that, but that would be like a whole other episode in itself. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then I, I'm actually going to save my number one uh, worst thing until after we talk about the top three, because it, it relates closely to one of my uh, top three things. So, Mackie, do you have a, a worst three? Man, there was in there for a second. There was like one thing. What was it that you hadn't mentioned? <laughs> it went right back out of my head. Uh, uh, well, we've already talked about the AI. We've already talked about diplomacy. I, I, I guess one of the things that other people like this, but I find it frustrating, loyalty. Because I get what the system is trying to do. It's trying to slow you down in some respects. But when my best option to go through when I'm on that conquering thing, trying to snowball, is to burn the first few cities because I can't hold them because of loyalty, it's like, come on. There's got to be a, a stronger compensation wave. If I if I put more units next to the city, can it put more loyalty into the city so it just even stays flat for a few turns while I'm going further in? Or because they gave us some things to help offset the loyalty, but it's not enough when you're conquering. If you're say stuck up against like say Eleanor and her how strong her cities are, they don't just flip to free cities first; they flip straight out into back to her. And so, you know it's. It, you know, so my options going on a conquering spree is either I go in and I burn those or I go in and I just leave them to flip to free cities with a bunch of chaos behind me and come back and reconquer them later, which seems completely backwards. Because At the same time, you end up trashing the city completely if you have to conquer it twice. Yeah, especially when you're trying to conquer overseas, you know, going through yes. the other continent. Oh, have that, like, God, that's like 25. Yeah, you've got that minus 25 loyalty no matter where you go, and there's no room for you to settle new cities. You can't just send like three or four settlers over there and try to plop down a whole bunch of cities all at once. Though if there is room, one of the ways that you can offset that is using the, um, I think it's colonial governor's policy, which like, and the... Uh, yeah, and I, higher I think loyalty and faster growth and something like that. And there might, 
Yeah, and there's also the uh, I think it's the Hick Sunt Draconis or something like Golden Age thing. Yeah, your Golden cities, Age thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, start with extra population. Like if you can get those two going, and you can settle like maybe three cities like real close to each other on the other continent, you can get a decent base of loyalty from which you can strike out. But like you know, like I said, it's one of those things where all the stars have to align. <laughs> For you to be able to do that. There has to be enough open space for you to do it. You have to be in a golden age at that specific time in the game. Because that uh, golden age dedication is only in, like, I think the renaissance and industrial eras. And then it's it's mm-hmm. gone. Uh, and, um, yeah, you need to be able to get actually get the settlers there in a timely fashion. So it's, yeah, it's a real pain in the butt to have to do those uh, intercontinental conquests. Yeah, and it, even just even just if you have a, a strong cultural AI, whether that's Eleanor or somebody else right next to you, and you're having to fight them just to get a good amount of territory on your home continent, I know this was probably intended to slow down the warmongering mechanic, but it's overcompensating base is what I'm trying to go for there. Yeah, maybe the uh, the military and slash or cultural alliance thing should actually like reduce or eliminate cultural pressure between the two civilizations. So that if you have a military ally on that other continent, like they're not applying loyalty pressure to your cities. So that would give you that much more of a, a buffer space where you can go in and conquer your common foe, right? And then their cities are kind of uh, you know, if not actually like buffering your loyalty, like at least not hurting it. Yeah, at least they're like null pressure against it. It's just the cities left of the other empire, which would probably help somewhat, especially for intercontinental invasions. Whee! For me, the loyalty issue, and I know some people are going to say, Dan, this just means you need to adapt your game. <sighs> it's easy to say about anything, yeah. is when you are capturing cities. And it actually kind of ties into what we talked about last episode, some of the controversy we had with regards to, you know, Wall's OP, question mark, about how heavily it favors the defender. And I get what they're trying to emulate, but there are way too many times when it's, there is absolutely nothing I can do in sufficient length of time and or to sufficient levels in order to hold this city long enough to either do something again with that city, to go and take more cities, I just have to go and raise it. Because otherwise, it's going to flip back and in just a few turns, and then I'm just going to have to, it's going to become a free city, or if it's a certain civ leader, it just goes automatically back to them. And either way, I have to go and take that city again. And then by the time I get that city, it's up you know, hollow part of its shell, or I just raise, 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 and raise. And at a certain point in the game, there's now these empty swaths of land with nothing on them, which is a was a big concern right when Civ 6 first came out, and even Civilization 5 to an extent, and even Civ 6 now. It's like, well, there's other nice lands to settle, but it's actually going to take more time and energy and resources to for it to be productive to what it is that I want to do. I'm just going to go take somebody else's, but then I take it and I get rid of it. And I don't think you should be able to instantly be able to use it or even necessarily build anything. I would kind of like to see a return to what we had in Civilization V. And I'm, I'm forgetting the term right now, right? When it was, um, oh, what was that? that? Anarchy for a few turns. They wouldn't build or produce anything. It's like, no, we don't want to. That seemed more like to me what would happen if you actually conquered a city. As opposed to five turns later, no, we're a free screw Screw you. Yeah, and are you talking yeah. about the client state cities? Yeah, where it would be, the, yeah, where it would be, you didn't have direct control over what was being built. 
Yeah, or alternatively, uh, something more in line with the Vazel system from uh, Civil. Yeah, you could marry those. Yeah, we're not, we're not talking about the peacetime vassaling, which was the concern of vassaling yeah. from Civ Four mostly. Yeah, this is in wartime, so it, it's because of that. It's really the thing that gets to me about loyalty. So I would definitely, speaking of a top ten, the implementation of of loyalty would definitely be on the list. I'd probably hover it maybe around five or six. And historically, historically speaking, like some of the you know, as I understand it, some of the most successful conquerors in real life were. You know, conquerors like Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, who went in, they conquered a city, and then they just set up a governor, you know, a local, you mm-hmm. know, dignitary as governor, and is like, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, pay your tax to me, you know, build a statue of me somewhere in your city, right? And pledge loyalty mm-hmm. and fealty, but just keep doing what you're doing. Like, we're not here to change the way you live your life. And that would end up like keeping those empires a lot more stable over the course of that rule because you don't have you know people feeling like their their lives have been destroyed and you know uprising against the conquerors and and stuff like that and that's something that's just not you don't have the option to do that in civ 6 at all and that's something where client states or vassal states uh you know probably would have a lot of uh value and historical relevance yeah even if it was just a special project that you could only build or you'd only start while you're at war with that other civ, but it's the, I don't know, transfer of governance or something like that. I mean, we sort of get that by rebuilding the monument and stuff, but we need something greater to compensate for that. Well, you bit. would need an entertainment complex and run the mm-hmm. bread and services yeah. project, but like, yeah, good luck. Good, yeah, good luck yeah. having a city close enough by the time. Yeah, it's uh, right. Or, or conquering a city that doesn't have it and then building it in a timely uh-huh. enough fashion. that He hasn't flipped in the meantime. Right. Oh, there's the term puppet city. Yeah, it's, it's a puppet, like I say, Jason. You, you put in a governor there, and it's like, okay, you guys manage your day to day affair, day to day affairs. Oh, you want to be constructing a water mill right now? Ah, okay, you know what? So be it. That's fine. But then if you tried to say no, I want to annex it and I want to take it over, then maybe that would be the yeah. You know what? That was the wrong choice. We are going to rebel in four or five turns because not only are you telling us to change our belief system along with our allegiances, but you're also trying to micromanage what we're doing on a day-to-day basis. And we were here a heck of a lot longer before you. And you know, you're, <laughs> any officials that you have here are not going to live like the rest of us. So let us do what it is that we, we're going to do. Otherwise, you said historically, it's like, okay, sorry, what what civilization do we belong to today? What empire are we a part of today? Okay, yeah. that's, that's great. What what does that have to do with my day-to-day life? What what do I care? Yeah, especially back before telecommunications. I mean, that, that actually could be a real, very real thing in a city or a small village or something like that, where you literally don't know <laughs> what uh, what empire your city currently belongs to because nobody no messenger has gotten there in time to say hey now you should be paying taxes to this other person halfway across the world whose border are we in this week did they redraw yeah. the map again exactly yeah exactly yeah I think right. loyalty of my of my worst way, i think loyalty is the only thing we hadn't previously mentioned because we have, we have some overlap on things you know was yeah. that was that number one number two or number three for you mackie Honestly, that's number one because it, it comes up so much in multiplayer and it annoys the beep out of me. <laughs> Wait, it, it, it annoys me in single player too. That oh, you know, you know I, I've got some aggressive butthead as a neighbor. You think I'm not going to have to go to war him? Oh, but I can't keep his cities because ooh, culture. Yeah, at, <laughs> it only. At least, <laughs> at least when you're playing it single player in the longer game speeds, like you at least have more time to try to do something about it. Mm. 
you know, because there's just more turns in the game. So you have more time to move your units and maybe conquer another city to get more buffer loyalty or to change your or policies around. Or get into around, the capital. Or... Yeah, That's exactly. The yes. But like, yeah. usually easier, but... But yeah, like, I, I had a game recently where I tried even using spies to, like, kill governors and foment unrest in the neighboring cities, and even that wasn't effective. I mean, I was trying it against Eleanor, right? But still, <laughs> oh, like... There was nothing I could do. Nothing. Every city I conquered just flipped right back to her within like five or ten turns. And you know, spy governors didn't help. Spies didn't help. All, I had all of the policies that gave me loyalty in my cities. Not, none of it helped. I couldn't do anything to stop those cities from flipping. And there wasn't enough time for me to move my army and conquer the next city because you know the previous city would have flipped back before I could do that. Yeah, because when you're talking about policies, if you happen to be lucky enough that the city you're capturing is on a different continent than your originating capital, you enter that that diplomatic, uh, excuse me, that economic policy as well, um, which increases the loyalty for again when you're, uh, the city is not on the originating continent. But otherwise, you've only have those two policies and you alluded to, Jason, there's the uh, the one diplomatic one about having a governor in a city and the governor itself is the loyalty. Then you have a garrison unit there and the garrison unit's there. And it's like, okay, I'll, I'll just go ahead and I'll, re I'll uh, repair the monument. And in the process of repairing the monument and it's, Oh my gosh, it's the the resistance, the loyalty resistance is so high that the civilization isn't even producing anything anymore. So uh, it's just like what can I do? So you're right, it is definitely not as I don't think it's felt as greatly on the slower difficulty speeds. It's just, it's really bad at online and quick speed that it's just okay, I want to, you know, we've got some meaningful choices to make here, but just give us time to actually make those meaningful choices. And if we had the annex versus the liberation aspect, then you could at least say, hey, how come your city's flipping in three turns? Uh, I chose to annex it. Or sorry, and I'll liberate it. Well, uh, annex or puppet, oh, I chose to annex instead of puppet. And it's like, well, you dummy, you could have given yourself more time. I mean, there should right. still be, there still should be a countdown. You know, it shouldn't be immediate. And I'm not even necessarily saying that if you, because if it's a puppet situation, then they decide what's being built. Or maybe over time, it's, okay, you've put in enough loyalty here and you've held it for a long enough time, then okay, maybe you don't have to worry about being a puppet anymore. You can take direct control because that would reduce at least a lot of rage for me. And Mackie's probably fine with this, even if she's thinking about a different rage because she's, I don't know. I just kind of interpreted part of what you said, Mackie, is it's really annoying in single player, but then in multiplayer, I have to listen to other people like Dan complain about loyalty too. And it's really <laughs> just dragging me down that much more. So if Dan's happier, then I'm happier. And you know what? It's a win-win. <laughs> it is. We all have that problem. We could we could probably be playing two full multiplayer games on on our Saturday evening thing if we didn't have to get dragged into the longest war ever because of loyalty or the cities suddenly getting a new unit or new era unit like <laughs> Jason was talking about earlier. And then oh look, I have ninety defense now. What the hell? Yeah, like, to tie back into the wall thing as well, and they constructing a unit, and poof, look at all the city strength going up. It's like, you know what, we just we just managed to deal with the city strength stuff, and now we've captured the city. Do, do we have to be penalized again? Yeah, yeah. do just, one or the just, other, but maybe not both. Oh, give us some meaningful choices, please. That's the thing, the meaningful choices are there. In this case, the choice is there. The wall thing is a, was a little bit more complicated, but in this case, just give us more time. Yes, it should scale based on difficulty level. Absolutely, it should. And we're not asking for instantaneous control and, and oh, the loyalty just disappears. Uh, because I obviously care somewhat. I mean, even if they don't care that, you know, they're now part of, say, just anecdotally, oh, you're part of Rome now instead of Greece, 
Um, you guys did kind of destroy some of our infrastructure while you were here, and you did kind of kill some of our people and our animals and destroyed our crops, so we are kind of ticked off. So we're not going to warm up to you right away, but holy jeepers, yeah. we don't need to go from one extreme to the other, because this is supposed thing, to be fun. Yeah, if you had a thing that's like a forced project that's basically slowly transferring over from the former Civ's control to your control while they get used to you, and you can't do anything directly with the city for, say, ten turns, okay, and then the loyalty is just flat, stable, it's not gaining or losing, you know, something like that, so you have a chance to keep going or not keep going. You know, maybe that project shortens its length if you go to peacetime and make peace with the other Sioux. But there's got to be a better way to handle that that's not so frustrating, especially since this is turn turn based, and we know the snowballing is the best way to go yeah, to win quicker. Indeed. Well, we just spent an hour talking about the things we dislike the most about Civ Six, but we do actually like this game. I promise. I swear. So we now will let's. <laughs> We will now take five minutes to try to prove to you that this is the case. And yeah, let's give the, the token things. To, so, Mackie, uh, well, well, I guess keep with you, and then I'll go, and then uh, then Dan can finish off. We'll invert the order. So, we, we talked about things we we dislike. Do you have a, a top three things that you lo- like or love the most about Civ Six? Well, I'm going to go with no particular order because as I as I think them, the districts were a great addition. Having to think out about that, having ways, you know, having to think about what kind of, how you want to specialize the city. Because I would forget to do that in the older Civ games that really I needed to specialize cities, but I kept having a lot of generalist cities. And that was probably a weakness for me in previous games. And it also, but also having ways to use the landscaper at the same time that you're using the landscape around you to make more powerful districts. Or if you like a particular city, you have the combination. Like, some of the reasons I love playing Australia, even though they're not as strong as they were when the game first came out, is that I get both because of the beauty bonuses on top of it being good land. I was like, I think I had a campus the other night that was like a plus eight. And it didn't even have four mountains around it, but it was plus eight because it's just such a beautiful piece of scenery right there. And I'm like, oh, this is why I love playing Australia. <laughs> oh, here we Okay. <laughs> but the, yeah. To be being, but even on a even with normal said being able to do that and make more powerful districts and utilizing the map, you know that I, I guess utilizing I guess the map dictating your gameplay somewhat is another thing because you may look at a map and this is a flat thing and it would be better to make a big population or you know you're I mean it sucks when it's your capital that doesn't have a lot of production to start with but as long as you've got something nearby you know you, you play more to the map now you don't just have one flat strategy to push out all the time. I think we had that thing and forget which version of Civ it was, but there was like a grid system you put all your cities on regardless of terrain, which always seemed bizarre to me. Almost forgetting. I mean, you still couldn't build on a mountain, but you know. Uh, what would be a third thing? Hmm. Those, uh, that's two things, but it's kind of it's one at the same time. I don't know. I don't know. One and a half items. Well, kind of even springboarding to what you said there, Mac. It kind of sounds like you're liking the civilization variety too, because in some respects it's like, woo, yay, Australia. Um, but it's not always Australia. You're not always enjoying the the extent of the adjacency bonus from a district for that, but you've got lots of choices in terms of civs, and some of those civs, of course, have unique districts, which, and in some cases, it's, I know for myself, it's like, oh, hey, look at that. I'm Greece. Maybe I'll actually construct a theater district this game, because, see, it's cheap. <laughs> Cheaper. Ooh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's true. I'll, there's... I think there was. A, I think the. I think going through the thread, the, the, the thread, the the the. the. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
words. Read earlier, I think it was a back and forth. Some people thought there's too much, too many differences in sieves. That seems like bizarrely weird, but I think it's more of, of a matter of like each sieve has kind of too much going on. Their abilities are too complicated. Like a lot of them are like it does this and this and this and that and oh maybe sometimes that. And I can see that as maybe being a negative, but I, I do like the sieve variety. Yeah, because especially if you sit there and you you basically put it on shuffle as far as sieves goes, and you plop in, and it's like, oh well, I'm Sithia. I guess I'm going to go run everybody, over everybody with horses today. You know. Yeah, like sieve five, each sieve had like one concise sentence, like explaining, you know, their unique ability. Whereas in in sieve six, it's like two, three, four sentence. It's like a paragraph of all the things that the sieve or leader or unit does. Yeah, there's definitely the, the danger of some of the variety to make it like a lawyer's dream. Well, this <laughs> civilization will accomplish this, except when the moon is... Oh, frick, what? It, yeah, at some point it just becomes seeming like, I, I do I need a spreadsheet to keep track of all of these particular things? When sometimes it just doesn't seem particularly intuitive. You know, I'm going to remember that, okay, I want to do it with this civilization. And it's, so it's nice, you know, on the splash screen, it reminds us you have a unique this and you have a unique that, and these are the traits for your leader and these are the traits for your sieve. So as the game is loading, you can be kind of thinking about, okay, I, I haven't played this Civ in a while, but you've given me a little bit of a reminder. I can go to the Civilpedia to learn about that. Um, and, and yes, shuffle. I'm like you, Mackie. I, I definitely like shuffling through, having it choose random for me. Not necessarily the shuffle map type, although that can help too. <laughs> but but sometimes it's no. I, I need to be on random for the Civilization variety because otherwise... And it happened, actually, when Civ Six first came out. I was all about the work carts, all about Samaria, all the time. And I, awesome. and I just realized, you know, I really know how to play Samaria really well and almost nobody else at all that competently, which was a terrible, terrible, well, imbalance. And that that variety eventually got me to realize that, hmm, actually, this would be advantageous because if you're Samaria and you've got these awesome war cards, but you're not going to be in conflict in the first 40 or 50 turns whoop de doo I got four error score because I built one. Yay me. Um, so that, that variety kind of adds to that replayability and kind of challenges you to me. Okay, what what is it that I want to do? How best can I do this? Maybe I don't want to do things in, in this order, depending upon the map type, depending upon who I'm around. I actually put Civilization Variety as, well, it's also on my list, but I'll, I'll, I'll save the numbering for when it's quote-unquote actually my turn. Well, yeah. And one of the nice things about the complexity of the Civ's abilities is that because they do do more than one thing, like none of the civs I feel really feels like it's shoehorned like down one path. There might be a few exceptions, like maybe like Scythia is, you know, definitely build lots of mounted units. That's pretty much all they do. But a lot of the civs have like a military power and then like some kind of domestic or peacetime power, whether it's like bonus yield or, or faster growth or something like that. That uh, that means that whether you're playing very aggressively mm -hmm. or whether you're you're playing very peacefully, turtly, whether you're uh, building lar fewer large cities or you're you know being very expansive, like almost every city has a, something in there unique that you're still going to be able to use uh, with that particular play style and that strategy. Now, 
as someone who writes strategy guides for the different civs and leaders on my blog, uh, www.megabearsfan.net, uh, listeners, if you're interested, uh, it did make writing those blogs a lot harder because there was so much more to think about compared to Civ Five, where Civ Five it was like they had one thing. It was very easy. You just focus the entire guide around that one thing. But now it's like, oh my gosh, I've got to have paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs about you can do this or you can do this. And then if you do that, then you can do this. And oh, it, it gets complicated. But it does mean that the game has a lot of replayability, even with a single civilization, because you can take that civilization in many different directions. Yeah, other people, I guess, are overwhelmed by all the differences and all the differences. But I look at it as a positive because no two games are going to be alike and you can't have a one strategy fits all and you're just having a different player skin this week. Right. And the map plays into it, you know, mm-hmm. so much as well, like we said before. So it's not just a sieve, but it's also the map. And, uh, and, and I even feel like the other sieves that appear in the game have more of an impact on how I play. Cause there are certain sieves like, uh, like the Cree who like are very, very peaceful and very good uh, to make allies with. So I might think, go into a game thinking, oh, I'm going to be like, I, I want to be militaristic. You know, I'm going to play a Sumerian. I'm going to build war cars. So I'm going to conquer the first person I meet. But then the first person I meet is Poundmaker. And it's like, <laughs> well, crap. Now I really want to just be his ally because you get all these buffs from being his ally. And I guess I'll just conquer the next guy, right? And then like the next guy turns out to be like Gandhi or someone. And it's like, well, shoot. Uh, all right, I guess I'm not going to use the war carts this game. I'm just going to have to build lots and lots and lots of ziggurats. Yeah, it's, it's fun to have those different variety of games. I mean, sometimes you go in wanting a peaceful game, but, well, there's Montezuma. I guess I'm not having a peaceful game. Yeah, Montezuma on one side, Shaka on the other. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's favorite peacetime game, not. <laughs> and if you're feeling for people who are feeling overwhelmed with the civilization variety, what I kind of viewed as the negative for me, which was, oh my gosh, I'm Samaria all day, every day, that can actually be a benefit to you. If you're feeling overwhelmed, then, like, like, Jason, like you said, Jason, all, all civs have something that's going to help them regardless of immediate circumstance, whether it's map, whether it's other civilizations, whether it's the victory that you're going for, but they also have something that they specialize in. And you can say, okay, I'm going to play this civilization, and I'm going to see how well this civilization does when I set up a game where I'm likely to have immediate neighbors, or I'm not going to have neighbors until later on, so I have to try to be able to expand first. And in that way, Hopefully people can say, well, I'm going to be you know, really good at this one aspect of the game. And if that's what you enjoy, hey, you're not being graded on this, you know, unless you want to grade yourself, I guess you could, then, then that's fine. And I think the civilization variety allows it to be both expansive, to be very broad, but it can also be very, very specific too. And that versatility, I think, captures even more players that would be drawn to a game like this. We've come a yep. long way from... So, what color palette do you like? Well, I really like <laughs> yeah. green, so I guess that's going to be my sieve every single time, because the only difference is the name, the color palette, and the name of the leader. That's what yep. Civ 1 was. What sieve do you want to have as a flavor, and what color would you like to be? With the subtle exception of yes and, okay, Gandhi had the unique flavor that he loved nukes, but that's a whole other separate <laughs> side conversation. Uh, <laughs> but only but only as an AI. That didn't do anything. Yes. Yeah. So. That's right. Only as an AI. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, the AIs in Civ 1 had flavors. The civilizations themselves did not. 
So I'm kind of surprised, Jason, based on what you said, you didn't have, well, the best and worst part about Civ 6 is kind of an overlap and an honorable mention because of all of these details and these strategy blogs I try to do. On the one hand, it's very good because it gives me a lot to write, but it's also very bad because it gives me a lot to write. <laughs> yeah, it, it takes well, two yes. to, to do a single guide instead of, you know, Civ 5 where I was popping one out like every three weeks or so. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so Mackie, was that uh, your top three? Yeah, that was my top three. Two of them kind of fused into each other, but yes. Yeah, all right. Well, and and my number one is going to be very closely related to your numbers one and two, which is that uh, I I really do like how the game map feels like a character in the game. You know, the, the map itself has personality and flavor much more so than in uh, in the previous games, and especially now with Gathering Storm, where the, mm. the map actually reacts to how you play and, like, acts out against you and, at times, even almost plays like an antagonist. You know, som- sometimes you do play a peaceful game, and your only enemy in the game is the map. <laughs> uh, when it's throwing storms and floods and hurricanes and volcanoes at you. And it, all, all the AIs are being nice and cooperative, but the map just won't. So uh, that's something that I, I really do like. Uh, my only real complaint with the map is, as I've said many, many times before, is that it feels too compact and claustrophobic. I really hope that Civ 7's map is a little bit more spread out, has more open space for us to actually like move and maneuver our units instead of like one siege spilling over to like three different cities, like it would actually be at one city. Uh <laughs> But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a two steps forward, one step back kind of thing, because I, I love the way that the maps work in, in Civ Six. Uh, I just don't think that, that, that the grand strategy empire building stuff scales very well with the, you know, tactical unit movement mechanic that the game has going. So there, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement there. Um, I, would def- I would definitely give the map kind of an honorable mention to the best for the reasons that have already been cited. Yeah. And then... Uh, Kind of uh, uh, a similar related thing is, uh, and this is probably something that gets very underrated, uh, but it's something that was added, I think, in Rise and Fall or Gathering Storm or in a patch afterwards. It's the uh, the map pins and the label system. So one of my favorite <laughs> underrated features of Civ Four was there was this button next to the mini-map that you could press that actually opened up a... I don't remember what they called it. Maybe it was the strategy layer or something like that. But it basically would let you use the mouse to freehand draw on the map in, like, your civilization's color. So you could, like, plan out your game, right? You could, like, you know, like circle parts of the map that you wanted to expand to or, like, draw little lines like you might see in a military textbook for where you want your, your units uh, and armies to go to conquer cities and, and highlight resources that you want and stuff like that, or even just like place labels and write notes to yourself so that when you load the game a month later, yes. you can actually remember you can actually remember what the hell you were trying to do. And uh, Civ Five didn't have anything like that, and it was super annoying because I would come back to a game like weeks or a month or more later, and it'd be like, well, crap. What the hell was I even trying to do in this game? I don't remember. Uh, I'm better off just starting a new game so that I know what the hell that I do. And then I never finish a game because I keep starting new ones because I don't remember what the heck I was doing. Well, Civ 6 now has this ability that I think a lot of people probably still don't even know about where you can. There's a little button next to the mini map that says, uh, I think, map pins. And it lets you place various little icons. They've got an icon for pretty much anything you could possibly want an icon for. And you place it down on a tile, and then you can write a little note on it 
to say like what it is that you want to do there. You can use this for planning out city locations, uh, for planning out where you want to build districts, where you want to build wonders, maybe what resources uh, you want to gather. And considering how important like for planning your your districts and wonder placement uh, is, like it's just an absolute godsend to be able to do that. As soon as you plop down a city, say, okay, I want a campus here, and then I want a commercial hub here tucked in along this this snaky river, and then I want a theater district in between them, and then I'm, I'm going to build the Patala Palace over here next to my campus and my theater and the mountain uh, in order to get the adjacency bonuses. And all right, everything's all planned out. Now, whether or not you ever actually get around to building all that stuff or someone <laughs> beats you to building <laughs> like that wonder. That's war on you. Yeah, that's Whoops. a, that's that's a different plans. story. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 awesome, like to be able to do that. And then I, I reload a game that I haven't played for a while, and it's like, oh, the, I right there, I can see exactly uh exactly what I was planning on on building. Oh, I'm going to put a canal over here so that my naval units can get through. Okay, well, I need to send a city over there and get get working on that canal. Like I I know all that stuff now. It's great, love it. It's a great time saver and a frustration preventer, without. Without a doubt. And the other nice thing about related to the pins is they can be just to you or you can send them to just specific people. You can send them to everyone if you're in a cooperative game as as well. I realize that's a subset of the community, but that is particularly helpful. I mean, you know, in Civilization V in our cooperative games, I mean, there was lots and lots of banter about, well, where do you want to settle? Well, I want to go six hexes over from the... And it was very interesting, but it was also very time-consuming and also frustrating and I, I like to springboard off of that, and it's similar, similar in some respects. I think it actually helps with that longer-term planning that then can lead you to say, okay, this is where I want that pin, especially for map placement. In my single-player games, that's pretty well what I use the map pins exclusively for. Uh, it can be very helpful, as you said, Jason, whether you're coming back to the game the next day or a month from now. But also in the user interface, there is this little feature called search. Yep. Uh, it's like, oh... It's like, what do you mean I only have one source of iron in my empire? Oh, I actually will have two. My borders just haven't expanded into the second or third ring yet. And of course, that's not coming up when you first discover the tech that reveals that particular resource. Um, or it's even beyond resources. It's like, gee, have I? Do I still have a galley out there that I could send back to upgrade to a caravel? Search for galley. Oh, there he is. And it goes right to the spot on the map. And also, time saver. Frustration preventer. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Which also was not initially in the game, but we're very glad that it is there now. Yay! Uh, yeah, and one of the things that I also think you can search for, and I've done this on several occasions, is pillaged tiles. Like you can just type in pillage, I think, and it will highlight all of the tiles uh, on the map that are pillaged. So if if you remember seeing that notification that like a hurricane, you know, like did some damage somewhere, but like you forgot where or like some barbarian snuck into your territory, pillaged and then ran away and you forgot where the heck it happened. You just type that into the search and it'll highlight the tile for you. You can go right to it. So hey, and eat your heart out, Phil. We actually had good things to say about the UI for a change. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Phil didn't want to be here. What? <laughs> yes, no, yeah, that's not like, the reason why he's not here. But anyway, and he bailed. <laughs> 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 he couldn't take it. Um, so my my uh, number third uh, favorite thing will actually tie into my number one least favorite thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do both, and then I'm unfortunately gonna have to talk about something I don't like the game as well. Uh, but uh, the number three thing that I liked the most about Civ Six, and this is gonna be a really weird one, but it was the announcement teaser trailer. 
And I don't remember if, if you remember it, but it was that uh, it had Sean Bean doing the narration and it was these little like kind of monochromatic vignettes. And uh, mm -hmm. like uh, it started with like, we are the builders, we are the architects of tomorrow and, and you know, highlighting like the, the course of like human history and all the things that we've accomplished and, and built. Uh, but what I really liked about that particular teaser trailer, uh, it, besides the fact that it, it actually is just a, a really pretty video uh, in and of itself i highly recommend that you go back and and uh watch it i've got it uh i have a link or an embedded version of it in this forum topic that we're discussing uh it looks pretty the art's real pretty the musical selection is is gorgeous sean bean does fantastic narration it's uh it, it's something that like i wish this were the the intro cinematic for the actual game like it it gets me teary-eyed almost every time i see it but what i like about it is that it's very pluralistic like the sean bean's narration says we, us, our, it's always talking about like collective human achievements. Whereas previous civilization teasers were always very much about like you leading your civilization to glory, right? They were very nationalistic, very, very singular. And this one, you know, I, I had this, this vision in my head when I saw this first teaser trailer that Civ 6 was going to be like, I uh, was going to have much more robust diplomacy and cooperative. Uh, gameplay where you actually work together with the other civilizations. Maybe you can even win, you know, joint or shared or cooperative victories and like friendships and alliances would actually last through the entire game because you're not going to have to turn your back on someone last minute in order to get a victory condition. And then unfortunately, the number one thing that I dislike most about Civilization VI is that it did not live up to the promise of that trailer at all. <laughs> None of that stuff that I just said the trailer made me think was going to be in the game was actually in the game. So it's a beautiful teaser trailer. I love the message behind it. I just wish that the game itself had followed through on that message. You're hoping for more realization, less tease. Yeah. Well, the only thing that hasn't been talked about that has already been talked about in terms of the best. Civilization Variety was three for me, and Districts indeed was number one. Uh, for me, the second one is the era and the ages. And really, it's it's not so much about um, the, the ages. You know, you're now in, you know, the classical age and the medieval age. You know, you're in that particular, I guess you use the term era for that as well, in Civ Six, because we had that in previous games. And it, it meant something then, and it means something here too. But it's really the eras in terms of the timeline, finally having an ongoing documentation about what it is that you are doing and having a value attached to that, not just for bragging rights, although, of course, there's obviously that too. But it's something that you can view throughout the game. You know, you don't have to get to the graphs at the end of the game to review what it is that you have done on a particular turn. That's something that you can look back on at any time. Plus, then it ties into what you're doing in the game to get that era score to determine what kind of age you are going to have in this particular era. Is it going to be a normal age? Is it going to be a dark age? Is it going to be a golden? Is it going to be a heroic? And it has led to discussions that, you know, conceptually, I never thought we would have had on this show. You know, before, before this being introduced in Civilization VI, I would have never thought, hmm, you know what, there could be an era system in here and an age system. And you know what? You're going to want to potentially be in a dark age. There's there's a reason perhaps to avoid going into a normal age so you can stay in a dark age. So then you can propel yourself to a heroic age. Or you can take these certain policies that are only applicable in a dark age. That kind of uh, that kind of nuance, that thing that is a driving what it is that you are already doing, you're being rewarded for something that you should be doing incrementally, but at the same time, it needs to also be purposeful at a certain point. You know, you're not just getting something for nothing. That, those kind of two things reward 
the the good behavior, and it also kind of points out to you, oh, the game has given me score for this, so obviously this is a good thing. This is something that I should this is something I should replicate for new and older players alike. But now I'm able to tell the story, and the story can be different every single time. And part of it is being competitive with yourself, which is okay. I want to get this particular error score, but hey, if I'm the first to do that, I'm going to get even greater era score and then this is going to allow me in that particular age in a normal age for example to be able to do this or not have to worry about loyalty pressure so much or exert even more loyalty pressure on someone else because hey you accomplish all of these things you find out that you're you know tying to something we said before hey we're now in control of the roman empire instead of the greeks oh wow i hear the romans do a lot of really good things with you know building wonders and having large cities and having units out on the ocean and discovering natural wonders they know about places in the world wow that sounds like you know somebody i want to be a part of and i'm happy that we're now in control of them that can be reflected in the game and i feel like it takes the best of a few things that we had in previous games that weren't quite so quantifiable or things that you had to wait for and puts it in this one location that just adds to the replayability of the game because to me if it adds to the replayability of the game then that's something that you want in the game and you just want more of it. Yeah, and that goes back to something that I had talked about earlier, which is that Civ 6 is very good about almost telling a little story as you're playing the game, you know, trying to turn your gameplay experience into like this emergent narrative. Like it gives you a little history textbook basically to read of, of your little digital world's history. Yeah, that actually does remind me. I do wish we could see the other Civ's historic timelines in the game that would be uh, kind of a neat thing to see or, or maybe at the end of the game like the game putting together like kind of how it has all its charts and stuff like that like it'd be kind of neat if the game put together one uh historic timeline thing of like the entire game like taking stuff from each civs thing uh that uh, had an impact on the, the game as a whole that would be a neat feature too you even tie that into the espionage system at a certain level you know hey you can now look at someone else's timeline which yeah or diplomatic yeah, yeah, and the diplomatic visibility because it's, uh, you know, I may not see their entire empire, but my gosh, if I, I've reached a certain level, I haven't revealed the hex, but I know they've got this particular city and it's size 10 and it's size 15. Maybe it has an impact on what you're doing or, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just a flavor thing. What does it, what does it really matter what their particular timeline is? But it's kind of one of those things where it would be very, very good to have. And I actually, I didn't even think about that, but that would also add to the intrigue because then you could compare stories as well. Or if you missed that notification that so and so built that particular wonder, hey, how come that isn't in my queue? Oh, I don't have visibility. I, I can't, I search for it. Hey, it's not on the map. Oh, but I've got this diplomatic level with the Civ, and look at that. It said it built it 10 turns ago. Oh, man. Now I hate them more. It would, be, it would also be very nice, uh, while we're talking about UI improvement suggestions, if like the tech tree would like have a little icon telling you that a wonder has already been built, so that you know not to beeline to that tech to try to build a wonder that is no longer available. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, yeah in, the, in the tree itself, just say that this, this does give you that ability. It could even be something very subtle which is just, like, there's an X over it, and then if you hover yeah. over it, it's just, like, already built. Right, or it's grayed <laughs> out or something. Yeah, because, I mean, yes, I know there are the reports that you're able to go to, and thank you for including the reports uh, in the game, but um, at the same time, it's... They're easy to miss and easy to forget about. Yeah, it, it really is, and so if it's, it's kind of mirrored there in that respect, then at a glance, that would help, too. 
Okay, so we spent more than five minutes on it. I exaggerated a bit, but we did not take an hour, <laughs> better part of an hour, talking about the positivity. Because who wants to listen to positivity? I mean, really. I would like to say that there was also a lot of constructive criticism in that uh, hour about the things that we disliked. We, we we offered ideas for possible fixes and alternative approaches. So, you know, it, it wasn't just complaining for the sake oh, of... Oh, no. Yeah, it wasn't Gosh, just no. a full solid hour of, you suck! This like, game's no, this awful. Is- Why does anybody play it? <laughs> Let's talk about it some more. <laughs> this game is good. We like a lot of things, and we have other things we don't like. And here's a few things maybe you could fix, possibly, maybe, please. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we we hope that in the constructive criticism, it was we also offered helpful, practical, meaningful suggestions on how it could be improved, how we could see it addressed. You know, just like anything in life, it's like okay, you you complain about this, so what? What can you do about it? What do you think should be done about it and why? And that just also goes to show that we care. Like we're, we're still playing this game. We like it that much that we're willing to take the time to think about it and discuss it. And in the end, if, if a lot of these things don't get fixed, does that mean we're going to stop playing? Uh, full stop? No. Maybe we'll, play a little, maybe we'll play a little less. Maybe we'll constructively criticize a little more. Still, sure. But... <laughs> I think we've kind of already committed to, you know, being in this for the long haul in, in this series. And really, we can do this for any title in, in the Civilization series. And it just happens to be Civ Six is the current one. And, of course, in this current iteration of the game, right? If this was just Rise and Fall or just Vanilla, let alone breaking down what came up or didn't come up in a particular patch, this best and worst list would probably be different to some degree. Oh, yeah, I think. Back, a actually, it would have to be. What we talked about, especially on the good side, was stuff that was added with the expansions. Like, we talked about loyalty. We talked about, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about uh, disasters being part of the map. Uh, the map pins and labels that I talked about, that's all expansion stuff. Yeah, yeah, and patch stuff, patchy stuff in some respects. So, what we're really saying is that in order to get positive things, you must constructively criticize first. And we will take partial credit for that on this show. Yeah, I mean, both Civ uh, 5 and Civ 6, like, improved considerably with expansions. So, you know, Firaxis is listening, and they're, you know, they're they're taking the, I guess we can very uh, generously call it advice, uh, to heart. I mean, heck, one of the things, uh, whenever someone tells me that video game developers don't care about, like, the game or about what the fans want, I oftentimes do point to Firaxis as being an example of a company that really does listen and really does, like... Uh, like take that to heart especially and then i point out specifically the example of the gods and kings expansion for civ 5 which was basically just like a greatest hits collection of things from the forums that people said they wanted in civ 5 like every single thing that was in that expansion was a feature request from the forums and like the religion thing that was added was basically just Firaxis implementing somebody's mod so you know, yeah, they're definitely paying attention and they're definitely listening and they're definitely improving the game based on the things that we say. So, you know, as long as you're providing constructive criticism instead of just complaining, uh, you are helping making the uh, you are helping make the game better. Absolutely. And I mean, yes, they have a vested interest in continuing to sell the game because, you know, if, if the first hundred hundred thousand people go online to complain about the game and they don't say anything redeeming in it that it's going to impact your sales and so there's definitely is a commercial aspect to that as well but particularly when it comes to patching or using their money to go on to you know another franchise or just using their name to slap on you know this not you know we're not up to civilization 25 at this point you know 
It's about, okay, we've got something here. Let's listen to the fans. We're going to take the constructive criticism because I definitely have seen criticisms. I'm like, man, just the way you've worded that, that's, you know, there's something there, but it's just too difficult to try to deal with you. But there's enough people that are communicating it in a timely fashion. And it is true, speaking of a very brief allusion to maybe some people aren't very happy with 2K and Fraxis now in terms of timing of whatever the next thing happens to be. There is enough evidence and enough that has been said that seems pretty reasonable that Civ 6 is not done yet. Um, so yeah, stay tuned for, uh, two weeks from now when we'll, uh, probably talk a lot more about that. Yes. Yeah, so even if it's just talking a lot about why there isn't a lot to talk about that in and of itself is something to talk about. <laughs> Thanks, Bonnie, right? Yeah. This, this episode almost came off as kind of like a, a capstone on the game as if the game were done. But, uh, as, as you'll, you know, you may already know, and we'll certainly find out two weeks from now, the game looks like it's probably not done. So there's Good a little tease. things. So speaking of something that's not done, maybe something that is done. This episode? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's see if this works this time. <laughs> hey, it actually sort of worked. Anyway, this has been episode 358. This music is loud. I knew right away when you played it, I'm like, nope, that's the end. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it keeps doing this to me. It works the couple times I gave it. Anyway, this has been episode 358 of Polycast. I'm still Makalua, and the Bears fan's still here. One more turning my way through quarantine. Dan Q is still here. Yes, and a shout out to Slash TJ, who tuned into the live stream for once. Well, we hope it's also not the last time for you. Uh, and not a shout out to, this, to me and the audio cues, because what is going on? Pretend you heard the proper exit theme there. Civilization 4, 5, 6, and Beyond Rose Sound Clips, copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.